Welcome to the Warriors of Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. Warriors of Grace is about helping men from generation to generation become gospel men in private, in the home, in the church, and in public through the Word of God. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Warriors of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And And today we continue our study through 2 Timothy, looking today at approved workers from 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 21. Here's what the Word of God has to say to us today. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal." The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, for some honorable use and some for dishonorable. But therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work." The church always includes combative people. They, they are less dedicated to the faith in their version of it. The neologism caged Calvinists refers to reformed zealots who are so quick to quarrel theologically that their friends keep them caged out of the theological fray. Ideally, leaders protect orthodoxy without becoming belligerent by meeting air with patient teaching. And then one can be a vessel for honorable use, ready for every good work, especially the task of teaching Scripture. Our passage today has two parts. The first part compares the approved agent of God to the ungodly babbler. The second describes a vessel for honorable use in God's house. And and whether Paul identifies this disciple as a worker or a vessel, the goal is the same, to serve and to please God. The passage has a series of commands that typically have a reason attached. We can outline the main ideas of this passage by assenting to Paul's commands to uh, Timothy positively. Remind the church of Paul's doctrine and negatively charge them to avoid disputes without words. For disputes ruin their hearers positively. Present yourselves to God as approved, unashamed worker demonstrated by handling scripture well negatively. Avoid irreverent babble, for it causes ungodliness that grows and spreads. For example, Hymenaeus and Philetus are upsetting the faithful through error. Possibly their damage will be limited uh, since God's foundation is firm. For he knows his own, and they depart from iniquity. By way of analogy, a great house has honorable and dishonorable vessels, so choose honor. For everyone who purifies himself gains three benefits. 
he they do an honorable and holy vessel useful to the master ready for every good work well timothy is responsible both to teach and to handle air correctly verse 14 says remind them of these things and charge them before god not to quarrel or fight about words which does no good but only ruins their hearers verse 14 tells us now remind is a present imperative timothy must keep reminding the church of the the doctrines that paul laid out in verses 11 through 13 that we looked at last week we, we remind believers of familiar things the choir needs preaching to it says we must dare to be boring by restating the fundamentals each each thing each expression of truth needs to be grounded in scripture but but pastors restate these and bible teachers restate these foundational principles for two reasons first let's be honest we're all forgetful and second many a heresy begins with a misguided quest for originality Timothy will charge the people before God, uh, for the Lord hears all speech, even quarrels over nothing but wording. The next phrase, translated as which, which does no good, has a slight play on the word epi. It's he quarrels over trivial matters. Matter are good for, uh, matters over, quarrels over trivial matters, matters for, are good for nothing. But you see, they may lead to ruin since they harm both the speaker and the hearer. Most strife over words is babble and folly, not heresy, but, but still, petty quarrels are harmful. You see, whenever people insist on a specific word, such as sin, broken, or even atonement, there's a chance they want to quarrel about words. In a, in a controversy, heavy settings, people can also quarrel about the proper way to oppose error. One, one wants a gentle approach, another wants specific denunciation of error, and therefore a quarrel about words can erupt if a pastor or a ministry leader allegedly fails to condemn an error with sufficient vigor. At present, public communication in the West is extremely contentious. Too frequently, disciples take confrontational media problem, programs as their model and, and imitate the voices of right and left-wing politicians. And Americans can't seem to endure disappointment in silence. And all too often, church members behave like Americans, let's be honest, and not disciples of the Lord Jesus. Paul informs us that quarrels bring room, controversies attract attention, even in the church, whether they touch uh, on musicians, politics, or even theologians. Charges of syncretism, heresy, or compromise, they start fights and thrill theological gladiators who lust for academic uh, bloodletting too many churches have been rent asunder by quarrels and the problems seem worse than ever in a in an era when anger and contention suffuse western culture speculation uh, ac speculative accusations are especially insidious as critics imagine that they can discern the true motives of the leaders they question the real reason he did that, and so on and so forth. That at worst, accusers repeat their darkest conjectures until they convince themselves that their speculations are facts. And that there is a time for confrontation and debate. J. Gresham Machen rightly observed that men will fight about the things that really are important. A religion that utters pious phrases but shrinks from controversy will never stand. There is a time to quarrel about words. If they are essential, see this holds, for example, 
Uh, skeptical theologians, they hide their convictions by using conventional terms. Uh, thus, skeptical theologians may label Jesus as Savior, but, but see, you know what? What they mean is that his teaching and his example save people from a meaningless life. Orthodox Christians are willing to do theological battle over that. We fight for words that convey essential truths, but we disavow quarrels about mere labels. And instead of quarreling, Paul tells Timothy in verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The command, do your best, calls Timothy to put forth every effort. Every effort. Workers can be approved or evil. They can be rewarded or punished. But the harvest is plentiful, and so the Lord needs workers. But he needs workers who are shaped by the truth. And that's why teachers rightly handle the word of truth, that is the gospel from Scripture. This meaning of the word of truth is evident in Ephesians where Paul tells believers they have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in Ephesians 1.13. And so rightly handling from the, the Greek orthimo, it means to cut straight or, or without deviation. In Paul's cultures, workers cut stones straight, which means that the, the, in Paul's culture, workers cut stones straight, cut a road straight through the countryside, and cut fields through the plows. In context, however, the task is to handle the gospel faithfully. Teachers cut straight when they proclaim Jesus' redemption and exhort all believers to trust in him without changing the message to conform to the taste or the distaste of the day. Since the Enlightenment, a distaste for the supernatural and a tendency to reduce Christianity to ethics has led skeptical theologians to mishandle scripture. But instead of wagging our tongues at people from other eras, we should consider how we might betray the gospel. Critical German theologians thought too much about their standing at the university. Today, pastors may give too much weight to their church's approval. Preachers stand before mature and immature believers today, the curious, the irreligious, temptations to adjust a message to suit the culture and the crowd abound. We know that people come to church with consumeristic sensibilities. They join a church as they join a gym. They go as long as it's the best option. In fact, they see the relationship contractually, not covenantally. And sensing this, the pastors do their best to uh, handle marginal adherence. And if they fail to entertain, if they say distasteful things, they know that the visitors will disappear. Pastors can forget their, their human audience, but they but they must devalue it. Not, not in the sense that they don't care about it. And I'm not saying that. They must aim to please the audience of one and they must be faithful to the word. And Timothy represents all pastors when, when Paul commands him to present yourself as one approved in verse 15. Approved translates dokismos, which means tested and found worthy. They're, they're trusted. They're trusted. God endorses Teachers who proclaim bedrock apostolic doctrine with conviction and with boldness, whether the message is popular or not. We should watch ourselves for undue interest in popular approval today. When Paul urges Timothy and his successors to be approved workers, he means that teaching the word, it takes work. And pastors acquire biblical languages and they discover the cultural and historical background of scripture. They learn how to exegete and even apply the scripture. 
and supplied, uh, sus, uh, apply themselves to the sustained task to this end. Most who labor in the word follow methods, but even the most spontaneous should concentrate on the meaning, the what, and the relevance, the so what, of Scripture. And so we should keep an eye on our needs and the issues of our day, but we should keep our focus on the Scripture. In fact, if we don't know how to imply Scripture, we've not fully understand it. The blessed man, he meditates on God's instruction day and night, Psalm 1-2 says. He considers whether it requires him to do something, see the world another way, pursue fresh goals, or become by God's grace a better person. By contrast, Timothy must avoid a reverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, verses 16 through 17 says. A reverent babble is empty, godless, and perhaps profane chatter. It's like a smooth talk of false prophets, and unlike the seasoned speech that will give grace to those who hear, Colossians 4, 6 says. And so if these babblers consider themselves progressive, as abhorrent thinkers often do, then Paul says they progress towards ungodliness. And if their ideas spread, they spread like a crippling disease. By contrast, true teaching is healthy, it's sound, it's true. Paul is concerned about the rise of false teaching. Among these false teachers are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the, other, the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, verses 17 and 18 tell us. Hymenaeus is probably the same man who Paul condemned for blasphemy in 1 Timothy 1.20. Nobody knows precisely what Hymenaeus said, although false teaching about the resurrection may connect to Greek disdain for the body. Plato, Plato says that the soul is imprisoned in the body. This captivity is caused by the lust of the of the of the bot caused by the lust of the flesh, so that the prisoner is the chief assistant to his own imprisonment. Challenges to biblical teaching on the body and the resurrection were common in the early church. Error spread uh, in opposite direction. One party said that biblical pleasures are dangerous so that believers should practice self-denial. Another party said that, the, that bodily pleasures, pleasures are inconsequential so that believers can indulge themselves. Later Gnostic uh, literature spiritualized the resurrection reducing it to enlightenment. And so the idea that the resurrection has already happened, verse 18 says, rep may represent a case of what we call uh, over a realized eschatology. That is the view taught that believers have already lived in full in the age to come. Now, apostasy can do absolute harm. If the renewal has already come, how can we hold much hope for the future? How can this teaching make sense of the death of a believer? The message of false teachers are bound to upset the faithful. Beth Falker Jones comments that for, the, for to claim the present with all of its pain is all that God has in store for us to drain life of its meaning and hope. It is to believe that this broken life is all there is, to believe that sin and death have the final word. Nevertheless, Paul insists in verse 19, God's foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You false teaching may royal the church, it cannot wreck its foundation, which is, which is based on the apostles and the prophets, but ultimately upon the person and the work of Jesus. Nothing can reverse God's saving acts. He protects his own until the day of salvation. Their salvation is certain because God has written their names in the book of life. It, it upsets believers when people such as Hymenaeus and Alexander swerve from the faith. 
that they once proclaimed. And still, if anyone doubts his status, Paul reassures them by quoting Numbers 16, 18. The Lord knows those who are his in verse 19. Number 16 describes a rebellion of Korah. Korah, where we never gathered 250 leaders of Israel to accuse Moses and Aaron of usurping the leadership of Israel. In Numbers, Moses asks God to judge between him and Korah, saying, The Lord will show you or make known who is his. And now Paul here follows the Septuagint, saying, The Lord knows who is his. That is, God knows who does and does not belong to him. He knows who leads and who speaks truly. In fact, God called Moses and Aaron. He did, he did not know Korah, who soon perished for his, uh, his heir. Now, similarly, the Lord does know that Hymenaeus and his allies are self-appointed and false. And so God's people can stay calm. There are, there are always false teachers, right? And God always unmasks them eventually. To Hymenaeus and his tribe, Paul commands in verse 19, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That is, if they call truly on the Lord, they will forsake their rebellion, lest the Lord exclude them and shame them. And we conclude that the Lord promises to preserve his church despite threats caused by heretics. For did not destroy Israel, and no one can destroy the church. Furthermore, the Lord summons self-designed, uh, designated believers to forsake their ideas and their conducts. Paul's invitation to depart from iniquity echoes Moses' exhortation to the Israelites to depart from Korah lest they die with him when judgment comes. This passage has important implications. First, biblical teaching on association with sinners has two threads, separation and engagement. Jesus engaged tax collectors and sinners, and God's people are always to spend time with unbelievers. But passages such as 2 Timothy 2.19, they warn us to separate from people who profess faith but deny it in word and deed. If we encounter false teachers or those who are living however they want to live, we are to warn them. We do not act as though we were one with them. And second, we take heart for God promises that he will assess and judge those who falsely claim leadership in God's house. Unless they repent, they will be exposed and punished. And until then, trustworthy leaders must oppose teachers. It would lead God's people astray. Third, we trust that, that God's foundation stands. Uh, John 10, 14 says, I know my own and my own know me. This knowledge includes the, gra the grace of preservation. See, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep, and he promises they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The Westminster Confession of Faith uh, 17.1 states, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but they shall certainly preserve therein to the end and be eternally saved. And so Paul's teaching on true and false teachers leads to the analogy on life in God's house in 2 Timothy 2.20. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. And so Paul invites readers to imagine the home of a wealthy family. In it, gold and silver vessels are honorable because they contain or display items of great value. Vessels of wood and clay are dishonorable because they hold common things, even refuge. Now, some uh, exegetes believe that the house represents the world. That is possible since the, the world does contain honorable and dishonorable people. But there are two reasons uh, to believe that house represents the visible church. First, Paul has just described dishonorable men 
who caused trouble in the visible church, even though they seemed to be part of it. Second, when Paul previously used house in 1 Timothy 3.15, he means the church, not the world. Like the world, the visible church has honorable and dishonorable elements. False teachers are dishonorable, but Paul is no pessimist. Reform is possible for unbelievers and mandatory for believers. Verse 21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so the opening clause, if anyone cleanses himself, means that Hymenaeus and Philetus might yet permit, repent. Everyone who repents receives a fourfold condemnation. That first, they have honorable use. That includes noble tasks in the kingdom. Second, they are set apart as holy. And this phrase translates a passive particle, suggesting not that people set themselves apart as the Pharisees tried to do, but rather that God sets them apart. Third, the repentant are useful to the master. This invites readers to consider themselves servants in God's employ. Useful could be a slave name, and master translates deposit, a term for, for God as sovereign. And so believers should therefore aspire to serve God in a manner that is useful to him, whether the mode of service matches our expectations and dreams or not. Fourth, we are ready for every good work. This echoes Ephesians 2, where we learn that while salvation is not a result of works, it is for works. Indeed, we are God's workmanship. We are, are recreated by God's grace, which leads uh, those to know Christ, to put off sin, and to walk in wisdom. And writing to a church marred by quarreling and defecting from true doctrine, Paul writes, The Lord knows those who are His, in verse 19. He writes to a church with troublemakers. That can cause us to doubt their status and to doubt ourselves. And so Paul writes, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This holds for believers as well as evildoers. The Lord instructs us all to repent and promises that the one who humbles himself will be exalted in Luke 18.14. Paul's comfort and commands flow from these foundational truths. And so we take heart for God promised to, to accept, assess and judge those who falsely claim to lead his house. The Lord also knows and keeps those who belong to him. God's firm foundation, the completed work of Christ, stands. And so believers, therefore, have honorable roles in God's house. Because we are holy through the gospel, we are ready for every good work and useful to the master. I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Warriors of Grace podcast. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you. And Thank you for listening to the Warriors of Grace podcast. If you enjoyed the show today, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you want to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or search Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find our show on the front page of the website servantsofgrace.org.